open up episode 295 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Ape Cape. It comes from the band The Terror Surfs. It's on their brand new album, Zomboid Surf Attack. You can find them over at theterrorsurfs.bandcamp.com or follow the link in the show notes over at monsterkidradio.net, which is the website for the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook, and we are going to get our Kong on this week. We're going to be talking about all things King Kong with a special focus on the 1976 version of King Kong. The first time the film was remade, and I'm not going to do it by myself, I'm going to have this Kong-versation with longtime friend of Monster Kid Radio, Paul McComas. I can't take credit for the Kong-versation pun, and I'm not going to take credit for any of the others either. Paul's going to take full credit for that when we get him on the show here in a few minutes. Before we get to that, we've got some feedback to go over. So let's play that voicemail. Hey, Derek. It's Chris Franklin from the Supermates podcast. I have to eat crow, or maybe I have to eat the great bird of the galaxy because I made a huge mistake last week when I called into your show. We were talking about Charles McCauley, who played Dracula in the Blackula movie, and I said that he appeared in Return of the Archons, which he did, and Devil in the Dark, which is, of course, wrong. Devil in the Dark is the episode about the Horda. Charles McCauley appeared as Prefect Jarrus in Wolf in the Fold, the episode about Red Jack or Jack the Ripper. So we talked about that when I was on Monster Kid Radio, and I can't believe I called in to say, hey, no, he wasn't in a red shirt. He was this, and then I was wrong. So serves me for being a know-it-all. But anyway, uh just want to say I really enjoyed your talk with uh, Dr. Gangrene and uh, about the uncanny. Uh, that sounds like a fun movie. And I have checked out Dr. Gangrene's fantastic films, the Vincent Price series, and I am now hooked. I have watched, I'm up into the 50s, and I watched like all the first uh, batch of episodes this weekend. So pass that along to Dr. Gangrene that I'm hooked on this series and really enjoying it. And uh, always enjoying Monster Kid Radio and looking forward to hearing more. See ya. Bye. Hey, Chris, don't sweat it, man. I didn't catch it either. When you said it in the voicemail, I didn't respond or anything. You know, things happen. Mistakes are made. And even in the most recent episode of Married with Monsters that I put out a couple of days ago with my wife, I gaffed. I said that Clea was the daughter of Dormammu. And actually, she's not. That was something that Stephen D. Sullivan let me know. He corrected me on that. So, yeah, I mean, we all make mistakes, man. Don't sweat it. And you're right. Dr. Gang Green's fantastic films of Vincent Price, top-notch work. I'm glad you're digging it. I shared your feedback with him. He said it made his day. So thank you for checking that out. Listeners, check out Chris's podcast, the Supermates podcast. You know what? I'm going to play the promo for that here in a second or two. So stay tuned or follow the link in the show notes. Okay, on to the subject at hand. Like I said, it's King Kong. We have a King Kong-sized conversation on deck for you. It is so big that I'm actually splitting it up into two episodes. We're going to get part one of our conversation with Paul McComas about all things Kong with a special focus on the 1976 film. We're going to get to that right after this. Well, Cindy, this is the last box. Supermates has now officially moved into Fire and Water podcast headquarters. Where do you want this Starman short box? Put it over by the classic monster DVDs. Be careful. Don't crush my superpowers Batmobile. Calm down, Christopher. Hey, you put the Star Trek DVDs on top of my comic action Wonder Woman invisible plane. Oh, jeez. Well, uh, now we can tell everyone that Supermates can be found 
exclusively at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, if they subscribe via iTunes, they shouldn't notice a change, right? Right. Or if they listen through the main Fire and Water Network feed, no change. They can just find the show's home, show notes, etc. here at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Well, I'm going to go take a dip in the Aquaman-sized swimming pool Rob has, but I am not putting on that mirror costume. It smells fishy. Oh, come on. It'll be fun. Hey, hey, don't trip over that life-size shag standy. That thing is disturbingly real. Supermates, the husband and wife geek cast, now a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find us on iTunes or at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Bond from the depths of doom comes the most fearful monster of the ages to strike with paralyzing terror the despoilers of ancient tombs. Here is new horror by the master of menace, Lon Chaney as the mummy, with Dick Foran, John Hubbard, Ellis Knox, George Zuko, Wallace Ford, Turon Bay, in The Mummy's Tomb. that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town. And it's brought death with it. We've got to run it down. as John Ford and Miriam C. Cooper present Mighty Joe Young, whose sensational exploits will startle you, thrill you, electrify you with hair-raising excitement and suspense. See Mighty Joe Young as he savagely resists capture in his native Africa. Joe! Joe! See the most fantastic relationship between beast and beauty, a mere girl mastering a primitive giant. See mighty Joe Young, enraged by Hollywood pranksters, destroy Filmland's swankiest nightclub on the fabulous Sunset Strip. Mighty Joe Young, the picture that's alive with the most sensational action thrills ever filmed. Mightier than King Kong, mighty Joe Young. too long since I've had this week's guest on Monster Kid Radio. And while we have plenty to talk about, I want to check in with my friend Paul McComas. Welcome back to MKR. I'm delighted to be here, Derek. Uh, although, the last time I was on, it was in person. Yeah. So, uh, not quite so satisfying this time, but uh, we'll do the best we can. Man, it's been a little while, too. There's been a lot going on with you uh, since, and just 
Real quick, what, what's going on with Paul? Well, there are some books in the hopper. Um, I'm working with a co-author on a scholarly book for a university press about Edgar G. Ulmer, yes. who you'll know from not just The Black Cat and the classic film noir Detour, but also from Daughter of Dr. Jekyll, the amazing transparent man beyond the time barrier, and a lot of other fine genre works, among other fine movies, all made on half a shoestring. I relate to him as someone who made a whole bunch of mostly genre movies from ages 11 to 19 on about a third of a shoestring. So I always aspired to that half shoestring that he worked. Uh, and, uh, well, hopefully Logan's Journey, the long and waited first Logan's Run book since 1980, hopefully it will uh, come to light at some point. It's hung up in legal due to uh, the intervention of a third party. So uh, I have limited control over that. But uh, Greg Starrett and I, who wrote Fit for a Frankenstein, that novella that you so enjoyed, not to put words in your mouth or frontal lobe, but you seemed to. Oh, oh um, yes. Oh, yes. That's fine. Okay. Thank you. We are working on the Mommy's Cruise, not Curse, but Cruise, uh, which gets the mummy from Egypt over to Mapleton, Massachusetts, uh, in which one was it? The Mummy's Tomb. There's two minutes of film time in The Mummy's Tomb, and no, 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 no. It's a hell of a cruise, let me tell you. Uh, all heck breaks out on that boat, and we're going we're gonna to tell you all about it in The Mummy's Cruise. I think I'm working on something else, too. Always working on live shows, and if people want to go to Facebook and look us up, uh, Dana Clay Band, D-A-Y-N-A. C-L-A-Y band, and we've got our Unplugged show, but also our holiday show, alternative holiday show going on right now at multiple locations. And there's another book in there somewhere that I'm blanking on, so ask me again at the end of the interview, and this just-turned-56-year-old will try to scramble and remember. <laughs> Sounds good. But we'll come back to this, because I know you and Steve have some things that you've been doing. Oh, thank you. Thank you. A book of playlists called Uncanny Encounters Live. Dark drama, something else, and something else. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> reading, kind of a stage reading for it uh, for Halloween. Uh, that is charity show up in Milwaukee. And we are searching for a theater company, nice indie theater company somewhere to bring it fully to the stage. Uh, so, yeah, we can talk about that at the end if you like. But I am so stoked and psyched for you and me to do some comparison and contrast commentary in our conversation today. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I was raised on 40J Ackerman and the puns, the pun-laden yeah. famous monsters of film. So there you have it. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for contacting me. Thank you for contacting oh. me about this. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah if, if nothing else, that the past 30 seconds more than <laughs> indicates Paul's qualifications when it comes to talking about this kind of stuff. <laughs> qualifications, demerits, whatever you want to call yeah, it. Something yeah. like that. Something like that. What have you done with your life, yeah. Paul? I guess it's a big question. No, I'm just. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You and my wife, that makes two. All right. <laughs> I have but... to let the greyhound. Oh, there he is. I thought he wanted. Sam the Greyhound, I thought he wanted out of the bedroom, but he doesn't. And, you know, as long as we're talking about Sam the Greyhound, good boy. Want to hear him sing? Uh -oh. He does a great imitation of Larry Talbot in Wolfman Mode. Hold First you'll hear me, then him. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> How could 
could he not Cheney Jr. fan that I am? I, I know. I was going to say that, but that had to be a prereq before he moved in, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, and you know, this is a good segue into Kong. I will say that in the same way that uh, watching Rise of the Planet of the Apes, anytime I watch it, it makes me want to hug my dog. There is something about our empathy for animals that when I see the wonderful performance by Andy Serkis in Rise, and I think it's his masterpiece performance, and especially when I see it in the theater, I want to rush home to Sam because bad things are happening to this animal. And uh, it really stokes my empathy for the hound. And as I was watching the Kongs, uh, re, 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 re watching the Kongs in order, uh, in preparation for this conversation, I found that versions two and three were both doing that for me again. Now, one, you know, because he is beautifully model animated, clay mated, whatever you want to call it, it takes us a little bit away. It takes me a little bit away from that kind of empathy, I guess only because, unlike in the second and third versions, there's no human inside there or modeling it uh, through CGI, as the case may be. And I know that when I was younger, I watched that movie and there was definite empathy for Kong, and there still is some, I guess, but maybe it's worn out and maybe it's because, as I say, there's no human being other than Willis O'Brien, I guess, if you want to put it that way. But there's no one inside Kong, and there's no one modeling him, you know, as a performance like Circus did. So that was something interesting that I noticed on this last run-through. I can certainly see that. There is a... And, and please, listeners, know we're not disparaging the first King Kong. It is a classic, no. bona fide piece Great of movie. cinematic history. But you yeah. are absolutely right. There is a slight disconnect because the human element is not present. And I don't know if maybe that's a sign of the times, you know, knowing a little bit more, knowing a little bit about the filmmakers and the kind of movies they made beforehand, where a lot of times animals were props, you know, I I don't know if some of that has crept into the film. I I love the movie and I love the design of the beast. I think King Kong in that film is fantastic, but you're, you're right. You see the 76, I think especially in the 76 and then the 2005, you do get a little bit more of a human connection. Yeah. Yes, I think this barrier of technology and, and really, um, I don't say medium because they're all films, but or genre, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just um, means, means of achieving the creature. I love the original Kong, but there's something, and this is, again, not disparaging, there's something cartoonish about him. I love cartoons. You love cartoons. Good ones. And in some ways, the Kong scenes in the original are cartoons. They're animated. So the expressions and so forth sometimes do uh, wander off into the cartoonish. Uh, Less so in things like the fight scenes, I think. You know what I'm saying. You get it. I think so. I think so. I think everybody kind of gets what we're saying here. Yeah. You know, you get into the 76 where you've got a man in a suit. Mm -hmm. Rick Baker, right? Yeah, Rick yeah, Baker and uh, Carlo yeah. Lom- was it Carlo Lombardi did Rombardi. Yeah, Lombardi really uh, Rombardi. <laughs> Rombardi, I think that's the amazing way in which they get that face to change, not through CGI, mm-hmm. but through something that existed in real time, in real space, hydraulics within the face part of the costume, creating some amazing expressions and expressiveness. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm tipping my hat here a little bit, and this is going to cause, cause controversy, and hopefully some, you know, some call-ins and, and, and email-ins, because I know this is 
the minority opinion. 76 is my favorite for a number of reasons. I love all of these films, actually. You know, you and I talked about how we had some disappointments about the new one. I watched it again for, I think, the fourth or fifth time and found a lot to love in there. Really, there are three fine films that are very different in a lot of ways. And of the three, the middle one moves me the most. And for me, I guess that's... That's key. You're right. Uh, it is the minority opinion. I did a lot of research, you know, trying to find more information about the films, that sort of thing. And yeah. when the movie first came out, it, it seemed to do pretty well. But in terms yes, of it aging, it, it didn't seem to age very well in terms of what the critics think. And, yeah. you know, it's unfortunate. You know, I think it is a product of its time, sure. But I think there are some things in that second film, in the about 76 version, that Really, it's not. They're not that bad. There's some interesting things happening in there. Well, by the time we're done talking, I'm hoping to get you back to watch it one more time <laughs> to see if maybe you can go from not that bad to this is good. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll tell you, the critical reaction initially was quite strong. Pauline sure. Kale, the late Pauline Kale, probably the most respected um, American film critic of her time, gave it a rave in the New Yorker. Um, people should look that up because she really got it. She got that it was a f- really fun popcorn entertainment and a moving romance at the same time. And end of the day, Derek, that's what I want from a Kong movie. I want it to be both. And I guess I particularly want that second one. I want it to have passion and romance in it. And again, uh, the second one, I think no contest is the most passionate and Romantic in the sense not uh, of a romantic adventure, you know, um, 18th century romance that means something exotic and, and sweep you away, because all three have that. But interpersonal, even if one of the persons isn't human. <laughs> it does have that. It does have that. And of the three, I think, you know, the third film, the 2005, I, I have the hardest time connecting to that story in that mm. film. And I don't mm-hmm. know if it's the CGI getting in the way for me or or what, but there's just something there that I'm not – I struggle yeah. with. You know, I connect to parts of it extremely well. The ice rink scene oh. is glorious. It looks great. Glorious. Yeah. Yeah, it does. But to me, and maybe for you too, I'll speculate and throw this out. I don't think it's the CGI because the new one, newer one, um, which is about to celebrate its 11th anniversary, by the way – Kong's not in love with Andero. Their initial relationship is that she's a prize, and then she's a pet, a very entertaining one. And then they become friends, which is lovely. Um, they share that, that sign for beautiful. And uh, you can see the, I don't want to say dawning humanity in Kong, although humans kind of suck in certain ways. So let me just say the the sentience and the, the uh, emotionalism of Kong. You see that, and I think Anne Dara sees there that really there's maybe less that separates them than she, than she had assumed. And, and it's a friendship. And in some ways I think he becomes her pet or if it's possible to be mutually pets for each other, uh, you know, <laughs> outside of, outside of, cosplay um oh no (laughs) sorry (laughs) this uh this installment of monster kid radio is rated pg-13 um (laughs) well there are two stripping scenes in it so i guess it is well that's true Um, true. yeah so so the third one yeah there's a lovely relationship developed there but it's not that and in the first film it's there but it's one way 
in the second film. It's there and it's two-way. Even if we say that Dwan, which, by the way, is an interesting use of the letters in Andero, mm -hmm, repurposed. Even if, if we assume that Dwan, that it's not reciprocal for her, so he's passionately in love with her and she loves him too in her way. I'm going to throw out there that there is a, an erotic attraction uh, on, on Dwan's part toward Kong. Not in the sense of, I want this thing to hurt me. No. But he represents libido. He represents eros. He represents pure, unbridled sexual energy. And if you look at uh, that amazing scene where in, in, the, in the 76, where she's gotten herself muddy running away from him, and he lifts her up and puts her under the waterfall, and then he blows her dry, and those cheeks puff out. It's so beautifully done with the, done with the hydraulics, the expression of this, this, this creation, this costume creation. And again, I love things that existed in real time and real space, whether it's the ice cavern that Box uh, occupies in Logan's Run or Carousel in Logan's Run, for that matter, or this. You know, I, it, I just prefer it to CGI. It's, it's real. And when he blows her dry, you just watch her, man. She is, I have to be careful here. You know that I work a lot in rape prevention and, and treatment and, sure. and rape crisis. Right. I'm not saying she wants it. I'm saying that there is some kind of pure unbridled force at work when he blows her dry. And Jessica Lange, who I think is brilliant in this movie, playing a character very unlike the real Jessica Lange. And not a dumb blonde, by the way. Not playing a dumb blonde. Absolutely that's, that's, not. That's reductive, lazy mm -hmm. analysis. But she is, she looks orgasmic. Her head goes back. Uh, the wind is in her hair. The expression on her face is just right. It's not overdone. And, you know, a good movie, you notice things every time you see it, right? Yeah, right? definitely. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure. What I noticed this time, maybe the, I don't know, 14th, 15th time I've seen 76, with the first three being in the theater when I was 14 and in love with Jessica Lange, noticed this time is that after that wonderful scene where she drops into the tanker, the hold where Kong is being transported, only one of the movies that bothers to depict transport, mm -hmm. um, by the way, another difference. She comes back out and she's exhausted and Jeff Bridges' character is trying to comfort her and the wind is in her hair and there's this neat echo. She's just had, you know, her first contact with Kong, physical contact with him since she escaped on the island and the wind is in her hair and she throws back her head a little bit and it's the same expression. And subtextually, I think what we're seeing there is that Again, no, she doesn't want to be his lover, but there's something there that is compelling to her. And if you will, a turn on. I don't know if you will, Derek, but I will. <laughs> <laughs> I will go there. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> no, I th okay. So there's a, a couple things that you said there I want to comment on. You're absolutely right okay, about cool. Jessica Lang. Absolutely yeah. right. There, there is a sense there that if she is doing the quote unquote dumb blonde act, it's it's an act. It's not who she is. She is so much more than that in this film, which is amazing mm -hmm. to me considering this is her first feature. That right. she, she has such a grasp on her performance and the character that she's bringing to life here. It's amazing. Right. I mean, Jessica Lange, we know, is an amazing actress. But even yeah, back she went then. She's on I mean, to be recognized as one of the great film actresses of her 
era. I wish we saw more of her today, but you know sure. the double standard where a man can age forever into Eastwood or Nicholson or whatever and be yeah. a leading man. And it's like anchor people, too, same thing. Well, here I'm showing like feminist colors that will no, get back it's, to this. It's but yeah, she goes on to right to do um, amazing work in amazing, quote-unquote, serious films. And the, the bud of it is here. The bud of it is definitely is here. And I'm going to go one step further and say, I don't think she is playing a dumb blonde. I think, in a sense, she's playing a Dwan who uses elements of a Dumblon persona to get what she wants. Right, that's Her what dialogue, I was trying to say. That's exactly where yeah. I was trying to go with that, exactly. Right. Her dialogue often is, is rather clever. Uh, the jokes that she makes. And then we get to that scene, the much derided scene where she first you know, consciously engages with Kong. And we have the silly mid-70s dialogue about, I'm a Libra, what are you? And by the way, I'm a Libra too, Derek. <laughs> so maybe I relate to her on that level. But, uh, you know, uh, you're just acting out, you know, you, uh, you have anger issues. That's why you knock down trees. That's really funny. Uh, and what is she doing? She's terrified. She's traumatized. She's borderline hysterical. And she's negotiating. And so she's babbling. Who wouldn't, right? Exactly. Exactly. Even in her babbling, she's even in her babbling, she's clever and canny. So I think Dwan is a great character, and sure. certainly more. Well, I'm not going to say more developed than the first Aunt Darrow, because first of all, she's a product of her times, and and second of all, other than her inability to engage with Kong in any way, she's quite a developed character. The Fey Ray, yeah. Exactly. And there are a lot of things. You mentioned the scene where she voluntarily goes into the – well, I guess she doesn't voluntarily go in, but she does voluntarily stay in the holding tank with her – or with Kong, excuse me. And uh, that's just a fantastic sequence because you do see her yeah. engaging with Kong on a level deeper than I think you see in the first or the third film. And it's just amazing right. to me there. You mentioned the blow-dry scene, which – you know, yeah. on its surface, maybe you could say it looks a little comical with the leaves, pu the cheeks puffing out. But you know, once you get past that, right? You're absolutely right. Her reaction, the way she sells that, and what's going on with her, yeah, it's pretty sensual. It is sensual, if not uh, explicitly. Yeah, it's not sexual, I guess, except in the sense of Kong as life force, as sex force, as libido. Mm -hmm. It is sensual for sure. So. By the way, John Barry, you mentioned the waterfall scene again. Um, I adore the soundtrack for 76. It is uh, the most romantic of the three, certainly just as the film is the ro most romantic of the three. And if you watch the waterfall scene, listen to the way he uses, I believe it's piano, tinkling piano descents to, uh, to, to mimic the waterfall. It's really lush and lovely. Just adore that Barry score. The main theme is quite strong. You know, the music in all three is fine. I, I love the Steiner score. And that first movie, it's mostly an adventure film, right? It is. It's it is. a fan mm -hmm. fantasy adventure film. And it has a perfect Max Steiner score that I can, you know, hear anytime I want to hear it in my head. The third one, I think it's really nicely done and the main theme is quite strong. But I think it's overdone in the sense of just as there's, to my mind, too much portent in in number three. It's like everything has to be built up. The natives can't just be uh, foreboding and haunting. They have to be, like, killing you. And every time we look at the map, there's got to be, like, this this quick, uh, extreme close-up with sound effects and jar the uh, viewer 
there's so much portent and so much foreboding that in a way I think it robs Kong once he arrives. There needs to be more dynamic range in that movie because everything is like bang, bang, bang. Uh, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's Jackson to some extent. Um, it reminds me of Baz Luhrmann, though not as much, that you're robbed of dynamics because everything is so kind of up there and over the top. But the score, there's too much of it. You know, uh, the first two movies, I think, and especially the second one, trust the performers and the script to often not have music. In the third one, it's like telling us how to feel all the time. Right. Rather than yes. underlying and, and, and enhancing what the rest of the movie is making us feel, which is how I feel about the first two, especially the second one and that gorgeous Barry score. He did so much fine work over the course of his career. Died not that long ago. If you want to see, just the, for contrast purposes, check out the wonderful TV movie from 77 called The Gathering with Ed Asner. And that's a Barry score. And it couldn't really be more different. And it's fantastic. It's a great composer. My second favorite composer. Uh, my second favorite soundtrack. After Go- uh, Jerry Goldsmith, uh, Barry's my second favorite. I could talk film scores for hours. Yep. I'm such a film score fan. And Right. You are absolutely right. I think in terms of the, and I'm going to use the word ride here, not because it's an adventure yeah. ride, but the ride that right. he takes us in the 76 King Kong, mm-hmm. the, the range, the ups, the downs, everything that we're getting in this film, and the moments where right. he pulls back, I think are pretty spot yeah. on. I love the Max Steiner score. Love the Max Steiner yeah. score. Yeah. But it is an adventure Steiner, movie. Skinner, yeah. Steiner, Skinner, Salter, right? The 30s, 40s. Exactly. Steiner, Skinner, Salter. <laughs> the three um, German expats. I think, I think Jewish German expats, at least two of them, um, so many wonderful people, um, in the diaspora that fled, uh, Austria, Germany and Eastern Europe during the rise of the Reich. And, you know, bad news, <laughs> you know, worst possible news over there, but good news for Hollywood because, uh, not just the composers, but so many people, uh, came and remade Hollywood for the better. And suddenly we get the Dutch angles, the Deutsche mm-hmm. angles and mm-hmm. that whole German expressionist sensibility and the Seodmeck brothers and on and on and oh, on. Yeah. That's a whole nother, that's a whole nother show, D. Yeah, it you really know, is. Let's, let's, let's put that one. Let's, let's make for notes sure. for that. Sure. Uh, and the James Newton Howard score for the third film, you know, he's yeah. okay. I mean, he does, he does great work, but everything yeah. about that film seems pretty over the top and excessive. The and, film, yeah. So does his yeah. score. I can't even think of his score off the top of my head. I can't hear it in my head the way I can hear yeah. uh, the Steiner or and the John Barry. I noticed Barry. that the main theme was nice. When I watched it again yesterday, I noticed that the main theme was nice. And I was watching it with, oh, my new 65-inch flat screen, which uh, Heather got me for my birthday. And nice. which is a business expense, too, because I teach film. <laughs> um, oops, is the IRS listening? So, uh, yeah, and, and then you play through the stereo. The main theme is quite nice. But it's like, it's Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry. And I wasn't a huge fan. Yeah, our friend Steve Sullivan, he's big into fantasy. I never was. I love sci-fi, especially dystopian and speculative. Uh, and, I, and I love horror and monster. But I never really got that much into fantasy. And, and it's a fantasy score. It's a Lord of the Rings score. But you want to talk about things that are overdone in the third movie. <sighs> yeah, we all wish that we could find somehow the missing uh, canyon spider attack scene mm. from 33, and mm-hmm. we've seen a still at three. But don't make the whole narrative stop for 15 minutes or whatever so that we can have every creepy crawly under the sun CGI'd into existence for us. And the thing is, it's a three-hour movie. I haven't counted, uh, but I would just tell you how it comes across at least. There is more... 
Kong plus blonde time in the second version than there is in the third, even though the third is much, much longer. And we all love the dinosaurs, especially uh, the first version. And they're very well done in the third version, too, but they're overdone. And one of the reasons that two comes across as the strongest relationship between Blonde and Kong is because there's just a big snake. And that's it. And the other interactions between these two, the two principal characters in the movie, let's face it, are not dinosaur related. So there's more time to develop that relationship. Now, granted, there's also a fair amount of time in the third one to do it, but the relationship that develops is not romantic, is not sexual in any way or sensual, is not passionate. And so the whole, you know, beauty and the beast thing, it is not about friends, man. You know, every version quotes it and it's sort of based around it. And that whole saying and that whole mythos is not about platonic friends. I'm sorry. Sure. No, you're absolutely right. They're absolutely yeah. right. Jack Black's line at the end doesn't make any sense. No, it fe- and it feels forced and it just, it doesn't. Yeah, yeah it's, right. mm. I mean, I, yeah. I mean, I could reduce my feelings about the 2005 King Kong into just saying it felt like a big budget fan film remake. Where it yeah. doesn't have the the heart, the sensuality. I think in conversations we've had over the phone, the lust, it's just not there. Mm-hmm. And right. it just seems like an exercise in excess. And right. I know, I know Jackson grew up love, loving King Kong. I know that was kind as of his thing. All. As did we all. Yeah. yeah. And, and he really wanted yeah. to make a version of King Kong. And, and as filmmakers you know, do, they want to make the kind of movies that they enjoyed. I get it. But right. I feel like having the studio controls not on him because he was so successful right. with the Lord of the Rings films and he was just allowed to go out right. and play, good for him. I'm sure he had a blast, but in terms yeah. of what happened, the movie itself, it's just too long. It doesn't have the same depth that you the other two. And right. I, I hope I'm not turning off any listeners out there who's like, oh, I love that one. It's my favorite. And that's fine. I mean, yeah, I'm glad no, you like it. But listen, I like it more than you do, Derek, and especially yeah. after seeing it another time. Sure. And so maybe we should just pause to talk about some of the things that really work about it. Yeah, I was going to say let's 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 bring it to some of the things let's that do, do work. It. Yeah, the evocation of 1933 Manhattan is beautiful. I mean, I can't say it's spot on because I didn't live there then. My mother did, however, she was six in 1933, and she grew up in Manhattan. She she lived on one side of Central Park uh, where it was not that gentrified yet, and she roller skated across Central Park to school every day and back. And she always talked about New York as her city. So when I was there with her as a kid, it was just, uh, it was a real treat. And it was so neat for me to be able to see, oh, this is what it must have looked like when she was six. The evocation of the city, both with and without snow, especially with. And, you know, see see a wonderful uh, fantasy film, fantasy romance tragedy called Portrait of Jenny, if you haven't. Because it also captures New York City in the 30s. And uh, the evocation of the Depression, you know, and so the movie starts, and that's quite nicely done, too. I think that the cast is strong, Naomi Watts especially. Adrian Brody does what he can with his part, um, which is a fair amount. He's playing kind of the first generation of angry young men playwrights, uh, and I think he does it well. Jack Black, this is a controversial casting choice, and yes, he reads his contemporary, but if you can get past that, I will tell you, as a an indie filmmaker myself, I totally relate when he's trying to, you know, at the risk of his life, he will carry the film reels 
and, and even the tripod with <laughs> he saves the tripod before oh, yeah. he saves his his VP, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, and that, that's the, actually the element of that character that I related to the most because, again, you said as an indie filmmaker, I also did that growing up, and yep. there's nothing like that sense of invulnerability that you get when you're holding a camera. Uh, and you, right, and then you've got to save the film. You've got to save the film mm-hmm. at any cost. I, I am not going to let this reel go. I will hang on to the clip with one hand rather than two, but I will not let this film go. And, and let's talk about supporting cast, and I'm not going to remember their names, but the characters, Mr. Hayes, the African-American. Now, maybe this is a little bit of, of um, post-civil rights era revisionism to have a first mate who's African-American who is so respected and called Mr. But I don't really mind because it's, it's a great character and I like the progressive impulse behind doing that. His disciple, Jimmy, you know, the wild child trying to grow into a responsible man. Englehorn, I think, is really good, very different from the, in the original, but also very good. Really fine supporting cast, I would say. And Circus is good. Circus is really good. It's not Caesar-level good, but he's really fine. No, he's great. And he actually does two roles. He plays Kong, but he also plays a member yeah. of, the, of the crew, which the is... Lumpy. Lumpy, yeah. Lumpy the cook. <laughs> I mean, I thought he was a lot of fun to watch in that version of... of yeah. Uh, yeah, I think he's great. Agreed. Agreed. So, other good things about the... Um, well, the, the skating rink, I mean, uh, it, that alone, it gives it an additional star beyond what we were originally going to give it, I think. You know, dinosaur stampedes are overdone. It's like, well, Kong fought one T-Rex in the original, so we'll have three, and we'll have them falling down into some webby vine work, and some of that is entertaining, but it just feels like it's overdone. And, And what I found myself thinking, even on the very first view, was instead of this, let's get back to the two principles alone and more of that bonding, because when you do that bonding, it's working. You do that bonding. I love it when she performs her, her vaudeville for him. I love the whole thing that falling over is funny to him. And, you know, I just wanted that to then segue into he's falling in love with her. And ideally into, like, 76, there is a power that is moving her about that, too. The vaudeville sequence, I, I think, it was a nice little throwback to actually give her some agency, give her some, mm-hmm. you know, th- this is who she is. She's not just the victim here. She's, you know, right. and I really enjoyed that. And it's a fun little moment. It's a cute little moment. Uh, and you right. mentioned the de- the depiction of 1930s New York spot on. I mean, it's, again, yeah. it wasn't there. But I couldn't help but feel like that that's real. And I know a lot of it's CG and backlash. I get it. I don't care. It looked great. It felt good. The zoo looks great. We start in the zoo and that looks great. Yeah. It's not a 2005 zoo. It's clearly a 1933 zoo and it's beautiful. And we start with a shot of a monkey. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and another thing I love about the, um, the newer version is the little nods to the original. The best is the reference to Faye. Where they're talking about who do we know who's the size for since we've lost our actress? What about Faye? Well, she's working on something over at RKO, and then Jack Black's uh, denim says Cooper. Marion <laughs> Cooper, it's King Kong. She's working on weird postmodern reference, and then the use of the Steiner music and the 1933 Natives ritual um, on stage at the uh, you know for the for the New York climax. Uh, that's just so cleverly done. 
Uh, oh, you know who else is good in the supporting cast is Kyle Chandler of uh, Friday Night Lights fame, playing as different a character from his, that coach character in Friday Night Lights <laughs> as you can get. Yeah. And I love the fact that he turns, I love the fact that he turns hero over the course of the film. He turns from vain Hollywood star into hero, but then at the end you see he's also still vain Hollywood star. Right. <laughs> Yeah, no, he, he's a lot of fun. When he comes swinging down on the vine with the machine gun. Yeah. Like, wow, that's, yeah, I, I know this is, yeah, this is an adventure moment here. Good. Yeah, it was great. Now, <laughs> as long as we're talking about redemption, exploitation, how far are you willing to go in your personal journey? This is kind of my main thing about the three cons, and it's where the, the feminist deconstruction and critique come in. Okay. And I'm going to try to pause rather than just hold forth for 14 and a half minutes, Derek. So hold me to that. <laughs> okay, okay. And I presented about this at a Capricorn uh, a few years ago. So we've got 1933. It's set in 1933. By the way, another thing we have to just shout out for this version is its original originality. You know, the others are, are responses to it, and this was the first. So it gets huge props for that. Sure, sure. Uh, no one had done anything like this before. I'm not talking about the, the animation, because there was Lost World. I'm talking about the whole conception. Mm-hmm. So we have that version, and we have our Feyre and Darrow, and she's beautiful, and she has wonderful presence, and you know she's called the bravest girl in the world, and I guess she is, because she didn't go into shock at any point that we can see. But she screams and screams and screams and screams, because it's 1933, and I guess the assumption was that's all that a woman like Anne or a woman period would be able to do in this situation. I don't believe that's true, but I believe it was believed in 1933. At times, women were still fainting a lot, Mm -hmm. fainting a lot in the presence of monsters and threats on screen. All right. We know, you know, and I know that in order to give birth, women actually have greater endurance and stamina in a lot of ways than men and um, maybe strength of character, too. So she screams and screams, and she never engages with Kong in any way. She's crazy about her, lusts for her, maybe loves her, certainly in his way loves her, but it's a totally one-way relationship. Uh, she wants to be a star, uh, and, and when they get, get back, I'm sure she doesn't blink an eye about uh, being part of Kong's exploitation in the theater. If anything, she's probably a little hesitant about standing before him on an altar again. But there's no indication that she has any conflict about using him, you know, the captive, uh, taken out of his world. And we should get into talking about the analogies there, too, in terms of it's a tricky one because it sounds racist, but I would say it's more racial commentary uh, of the slave trade. And, and, and we'll, we'll get there, I'm sure. Oh, and of course, on the Empire State, just screams and screams and screams, uh, never does anything to try and help or save him. Now we go to 76, in the teeth of the women's movement. Uh, you know, I came of age during the women's movement. Maybe that's why I, I turned out to be a feminist. I've noticed that not just guys older than me, but some guys younger than me, too, just don't get it. My identity formation took place during that movement and a, a reformation, if you will, of gender roles in American culture. So they're threading a needle. This one, like the first one, is contemporary to its time. 33, set in 33, 76, set in 76, came out in 76, made in 75, actually. And, you know, we had the women's movement is all over this thing. And so is the era from the reference to Deep Throat to the energy crisis. It's the most political of the three movies. 
I mean, I think two and three both are saying something about, um, and maybe one a little bit, about um, the rape of the environment by by human beings. But this one really goes there with the whole Petrox oil company, putting Kong in the hold where the, you know, huge quantity of, of uh, plundered natural resource would go. And Jeff Bridges' line about uh, you've taken their god away from them. He was the magic. He was the mystique. It's a very political movie, which I also appreciate. So here's, here's Duan. And yes, she engages with, with Kong. She grows to love him as a friend and maybe a little bit of that other stuff too. And she wants to be a star. They get back and she feels terrible about it, but she does participate in his exploitation for the sake of her career, even though it's going to probably end her romance with uh, the Jeff Bridges character. She wants to be a star even more than I think she, she wants him. But she tries to stop those choppers from shooting Kong down, get her up. She yeah, she stops screaming pretty early in the film and gets it that this is going to be her lifeline and also that this is a creature with a soul. And up on top of the uh, World Trade Center, which is a whole other conversation, <laughs> the way this, the way the third act plays out for us now, post 9-11. But uh she, you can see she puts herself right in front of him and tries to stop the choppers. She's more gutsy in protecting Kong than, than even the, the new liberated Andero. And, and that's my segue to talking about 2005, set in 33. It's the only one that's a period piece. And she has the most agency. It is a post-feminist era Andero who maybe is not always treated as such. There's still that, well, you got to protect the woman. But in terms of the way she acts... She really acts mostly like a 2005 woman, up to and including much as she would like to be famous and wealthy, well, wealthy and famous in that order. She's a child of the Depression. She is not going to exploit that ape. She has not just agency, but the kind of scruples and principles that the other two do not that is revisionism, perhaps, wishful thinking, uh, given that she was starving and couldn't find any work. I don't know how realistic that is. She, she's a better man than I am, Gunga Din. She's, uh, she's, you know, I'm not sure that in her shoes I would be able to resist the exploitation. I would love to think that I could. But it is a, a, a neo-feminist or a post-feminist or just a plain feminist reworking of that character. Uh, we go from terrified, one-way relationship, fears Kong, and only fears Kong. That's the only emotion that we see from Fay Ray vis-a-vis her her co-star. Two, uh, Jessica Lange and the bond that forms, which is Friendship Plus, especially in his from him to her, but maybe a little bit from her to him, too, in the ways we've discussed. And uh, yet, she will sacrifice that, not happily for what she wants to get out of it. And then all the way to, we're back in 33, but we're not. We're back in 33, but really we're in 2005. And and a full agency, full feminist, full hero, and Darrow, who will not uh, participate in the exploitation. And that arc to me is really interesting because any film that's set in a different time is about, or, or book or narrative, is about two times. It's about the time it's depicting, and it's about the time in which it was made. And in the first two, you see that uh, both of them are about the times in which they were made very much. How can they not be? They reflect uh, the times in many ways. 
um, especially interestingly for 76, because I, I know that time. I was so excited when the movie came out, and I was not disappointed. Apparently some were. I was not. Um, and then you get that extra level with the third one where it is about 33, but it's also about 2005. And therefore, it's about the gaps between those two times, because it's not an utterly faithful. Sure, to, to us, it looks like it's utterly faithful uh, in terms of the look of New York and the depiction of the Depression and so forth. But I would say it's not utterly faithful in terms of larger issues, particularly as regards what an Andera would and would not be able or willing to bring herself to do, given that uh, she's a single woman alone who needs to eat. And there ends my 14 and a half minute uh, forewarned monologue. Uh, your, your commentary on it, Derek, would be welcome at this time. And I think if you look at it you know, on a grand scale, on a meta scale, you do yeah. see that progression uh, of the portrayal of, or the depiction, I suppose, of Anne or Dwan uh, through the three Absolutely. films. It is an interesting uh, journey that you can take if you look at the three all together, and especially in the first two, if you kind of take them apart and set them aside, yeah. you can see that as well. And I think it's interesting, the comment that you just made, when you have a period piece, it's about two times, and I, I think right. that's something I think a lot of people kind of forget, that yeah. when you are either creating or enjoying a piece that is deliberately made as a period piece, you yeah. do get the filter, the modern day filter or the contemporary filter that you just can't get away from when you're looking back it's on sometimes something. Sometimes more, sometimes more, sometimes less. Right. But it, it, it can't help but be there. And it works for futurist works too. You know, I mentioned Logan's Run before. Is that movie about the 23rd century? Yes. Is it also about sure. mid-70s mall culture, free love, superficial materialism, sure. and youth worship? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and they're not mutually exclusive. It's a way of projecting that into a dystopian vision of what if it got far worse than it is today. Right. So uh, when I, I did my kind of feminist uh, explication of the three versions at Capricorn, you know, uh, I used the chalkboard um, or dry erase board to, to show the eras and, and the different elements of the films, especially as regards the blonde in each and then the guy raises his hand in the back. And I said, yes. He said, yeah, but the special effects in the second one really sucked. I'm like, okay, you and I are different conventions. <laughs> 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 and by the way, they don't suck. Some of the, the blue screen is not good, and you can see the outlines, especially if you watch it on a big screen. And, and some of it, it breaks their heart, because here's a shot that would really work if they did a better job of, of combining the different elements. Jeff Bridges, the, down in the cave at the top of the canyon, it looks terrible. But some of these effects are quite good. As I mentioned, the hydraulics within the face. And, uh, but, and just the, you know, it's my favorite of the three movies, but it's my favorite of the three Kong's initial entrance scenes. It's so well done, and the compositing is perfect. And you would swear you are looking at a, you know, giant anthropoidal creature uh, coming to the altar there in a way that definitely not in the first, because he's a, you know, beautifully animated model that doesn't really look, quote, real, unquote. And then the third one. You don't know. I'm just so aware of, okay, here's our CGI Kong for the first time. Whereas in the second one, I'm not thinking man in a suit. Really, I'm, I'm thinking, wow. 
especially when I was 14. It blew me away. I think the parts that maybe fail a little bit in terms of the effects in 76 are some of the optical elements when they are trying to blend the blue screen and all. The man in suit stuff, I know that Rick Baker himself is like, well, you know, it's not my best work or whatever. But I think it does hold up. I think it does look really good for what it is and for what it became. I think it's a really solid creature. And, and you know character. What? Yeah, and it's because it's a performance. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and circus is too. But this is a direct performance. Yes, it's a suit with a mask, but the mask is beautifully uh, animated in the larger sense of that word, made to move, made to live, uh, given life, given, uh, given animus. You know, I, apparently Baker wanted to do some knuckle walking. Apparently he wanted to use some hand extensions and uh, do some knuckle walking, and De Laurentiis didn't want him to. I think it would have been a nice touch. Certainly the third film has the most gorilla-like gorilla, and, and that's something I appreciate about it, too, actually, as a kind of amateur primatologist from Kong through the Planet of the Apes movies and other things, too. But, yeah, given that it's a gorilla that stands uh, on its hind legs, uh, almost all of the time. Uh, the Baker Kong is, I think, really well realized. It is a very nice gorilla suit, as gorilla suits go. The fake hand is, is most, and pants are mostly used uh, quite well. Yeah, the effects are okay for the snake. The snake approach is nicely done, I think. But once the snake is on him, and you can read about the, the making of the film and about the uh, making of the snake scene, and it's not good. They had to cut that snake in pieces, actually, and wrap them around uh, Baker and the suit and just not show the, the cut places. Because when they tried to wrap the whole thing around him, it was creasing. So uh, the snake approach I like and the snake uh, head, the mechanical snake head that, you know, I think it opens and closes its jaws a couple of times. And then that looks pretty cool. You know, again, I, this is controversial, but I, I don't miss the dinosaurs. There are lots of great dinosaur movies. And frankly, the original Kong is one of them. And and to some extent, the, the newer one is too. But when you've got the Beauty and the Beast thing, and you've got the Kong and Blonde thing working as well as it does in the second movie, I was glad that we weren't, frankly, wasting our time on a lot of dinosaur stuff in that film. It didn't need it. That's not what the movie was about this time around. It just no, wasn't right. about that. And I didn't miss it at all. Uh, in fact, when I went back and I... I watched that movie again, and then I watched the 2005, and I just felt, man, so many dinosaurs. I, we live in a post-Jurassic Park world now. Right. I don't need the right. dinosaurs here anymore. It, it's not important. Yeah, I like your Jurassic Park reference because he's trying to out, Jackson's trying to out Spielberg Spielberg to some extent. And maybe you can't put all those Jurassics together. There's some incredible stuff. In the new one, I love the three scenes early, middle, and end with the Mosasaurus, who is an underutilized uh, prehistoric reptile, as far as I'm concerned, and was finally done justice, albeit in, enlarged about 30 times over, but that's that's artistic license. Um, <laughs> yeah, and it, interesting, out Spielberg and Spielberg are trying to. There's there's something that's, that links these two directors. A couple things, maybe. One is frequent overkill. And the John Williams scores in Spielberg are sometimes overused and overcomposed in the same way that you see it in, in my opinion, Lord of the Rings films and Kong 2005. It's like, tell us how to feel at every given moment and always whip up that orchestra as much as you can. So there's that, which I find manipulative. I know when I saw E.T. for the first time in the theaters, 
we've got basically two death scenes or a death and a farewell scene, which is two farewell scenes. And in the, the last one, the ship is rising with the ET in it, and those lights are shining right into the camera, which is one way to activate tear ducts, and in other ways to tell in the Williams score. And I got to say, I wasn't that smitten with that movie, but I think my eyes were welling up a little bit because the combination of light and, and manipulative music, and I, I kind of resented that. So I see the directors as having that in common. And the other thing is, neither one of them really can handle sex. Sex! You know, one of our main reasons for living? And it is literally a reason that we're alive. And, you know, look at how Spielberg tries to handle it in the color purple, and all he can do is turn it into some nervous jokes. And uh, I, is there anything sexy about any of the Lord of the Rings films besides the fact that, you know, some of these characters are attractive? Everyone's in love with the blonde elf guy, I guess. But there, there's no sexuality in those movies and there's no sexuality in his Kong either uh, despite a romantic relationship between uh, Brody and, uh, and, and Watts and it's nice to see them neck I guess or kiss a little bit but the passion of Kong is missing so that's kind of a big omission not just from the third movie for me but from a director's canon from yeah. his palette if you will yeah yeah. You know, thinking back on Peter Jackson's filmography, you know, I, I can't think of a film that he's done that has the depth of that kind of a relationship, the sexual relationship. I think, yeah. I mean, we, we have some beautiful relationships. Uh, and, you know, 94's Heavenly Creatures is a, fan, a fascinating right. film. Yeah, I think that's his best film. Right. Yeah. But you don't have, again, the, the sexual, huh. And it is something that I... I think I knew on on the surface about Spielberg. I mean, I like Spielberg, you know, a lot, and I like John Williams a lot. But I, th I think you're right, especially later in their career when they start having kids and start doing the big studio thing. It, it becomes about the big spectacle and the manipulation. And you're absolutely right. Uh, and I do see that being a, a problem with with the 2005 Kong. Sure. Yeah, uh, Spielberg's more interested in families uh, broken and otherwise. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. The intact mm -hmm. family of intact family of Jaws, which I think is his masterpiece, or the yes. broken family of of a movie like E.T. and the feminist uh, deconstruction of E.T. By the way, says that um, a divorced mom is incapable of raising children on her own. She has an extraterrestrial in her house and doesn't even know it because she's overtaxed. And by the end, she's being framed uh, uh, in a in a kind of a marital way with one of the male scientists. And again, this is undoubtedly unconscious on Spielberg's part, and we know where it comes from. It comes from his own personal history. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, but there's no sexuality in his movies. There's no sexuality in Peter Jackson's. And Heavenly Creatures, by the way, would have been a good opportunity for that between the two leads, the, mm -hmm. two, uh, the two girls. Um, that would have been an appropriate added dimension to that film that would have given it uh, just that much more uh, power and impact. Agreed. And before people start saying, hey, E.T., why are you talking about E.T. on Monster Kid Radio? Carlo Rombaldi designed E.T., yeah. and he was involved in the 76 King Kong. So there's your connection. I just justified it. Okay. Yeah, thank you. And <laughs> didn't he work on Gorillas in the Mist? I know Baker, Baker did. Uh, you know, a yeah. lot of these usual suspects kept popping up for creature design and especially ape design. And, and they did it great. They, they got better and better. And yes. then we enter the CGI era, and it's like, yeah, that's pretty amazing. And I also get a sense often of that never really existed, did it? <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, there's this this plasticky uh, sense of it's just not there and it never was that I I yeah. don't respond well to. I love the idea of knowing that you know what there's a guy in that suit and I know maybe I'm disconnected from the story because I can recognize there's a guy in the suit. Yeah. But to me that also makes it better because then you can see just the eyes. Just look into Kong's mm-hmm. eyes in seventy six. Right. Just look in his eyes. Right. Even with mm-hmm. the lenses on that were tearing up Rick's corneas. You know, <laughs> e- even with the eyes are soulful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. CGI the other thing is temptation of CGI and, and my favorite use of it probably is in Rise of the Planet of the Apes. And to some extent Dawn. I think Rise is a much better movie. Um but the temptation, even in Rise, is, well, as long as we can do this, let's make apes jump 30 feet instead of the 12 they're capable of. And Rick Baker can't do that. And that's good. <laughs> you know, yeah. If you put a couple strings on him or something, maybe he can jump his 12. But there's not that, that temptation to, let's turn these things into crazy-ass superheroes. Because you can't do it with a man in a suit without it looking awfully fake. And so we have the shot of him jumping from the top of one tower to the other, Baker in 76. And it's kind of fakey looking, but he just barely manages it. Whereas Rise to the Planet of the Apes using the CGI, they're doing some incredible leaps and all they're missing is a cape and a mask, honestly. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can talk about the World Trade Center now. What? Wow, how surreal. I mean, yeah. oh, I... I... I know there are events in human history and American history where you can look back and say, I know where I was when this happened. Yep. I can tell you where I was, what I was doing, what I was wearing when that happened and, and where my wife was. Uh, she was at work. I was, and I was at home. I was in a bathrobe because I was uh, doing nude modeling that morning and they sent us all home. Yeah. I, um, I was getting dressed for the day. Yeah. And that was the refugee situation or the closest I've ever come in person because everyone was flocking for the uh, elevated trains um, mm-hmm. and getting the hell out of downtown Chicago because you didn't know. Right. DC and New York had been hit. Right. So you didn't know. So my, the first thing I want to say about the World Trade Center is I remember when it was being built. I'm that old. I remember when it was completed. Okay. And De Laurentiis, I think, was dead to rights in saying this has to be where he goes. And it creates interesting dramatic situations where Jeff Bridges gets to the top and then all of a sudden Kong's on the other tower and, you know, he's kind of screwed. He can't get to her anymore, which is nice because it's a metaphor for the separation in their relationship. Mm-hmm. And so we have the leap and maybe it's kind of fake, but it's also a cool idea and Kong just barely manages it. And that's nice. So I was in the World Trade Center a day or two after they filmed the finale crowd scene at the bottom oh really and yeah uh family vacation to new york and boston and the styrofoam kong was still down there but covered with a tarp to preserve him in case it rained they had done an open call and they had as you see a wonderful huge mob out there for two nights of shooting and i missed it by this much Derek. i missed it by this much oh wow yeah <laughs> wow i could have been in that crowd with jessica lang and jeff bridges and, da, 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 and kong so i remember looking at that thing under the tarp and like oh, geez, i want to go peek under that tarp because <laughs> we wouldn't be out for another six months <laughs> so and i remember at the top we went to windows on the world restaurant and well i'm 13 and and they I didn't have a sport coat, and you have to have a sport coat to get in, so they brought out one of the sport coats from the closet that they use for kids like me. So I have these specific uh, memories, and then, you know, the whole third act of this movie 
you watch it after 9-11, it's like you say, we all knew where we were and what we were doing. And you can't watch that ending objectively anymore, especially when there are sirens and ambulances and spotlights and all kinds of things associated with emergency and large scale trauma. It's weird. Just weird. A lot of mixed feelings, a lot of mixed feelings. And, and I don't know, maybe it's a little revisionist when they go back and they re-release this movie and they don't put the World Trade Center on the, uh, on the box art or, or the movie poster right. or when right. they pulled the, uh, first trailer for the, uh, Toby Maguire Spider-Man because the World Trade Center was in it. I mean, it's right. maybe a little revisionist, but it's just, it's, oh, there's just so much emotional weight. Yeah associated with seeing that and yeah to hear the sirens and to see the helicopters flying around the world trade center well opening fire on kong on, on the world trade center right. it doesn't one of them i think when he throws one does it crash into the building or am i, I just projecting no i think so i happens? think so and it's yeah it's different it is very different yeah and and, and here's kind of an interesting this isn't a genre film but uh, the film Magnolia is really interesting, sprawling three-hour movie about uh, interconnected narratives in contemporary Los Angeles. Uh, came out about 12, 14 years ago. Julianne Moore, my favorite living screen actress, probably. And you saw that movie in 2000, I believe, is when it came out. And the ending, there's a rain of frogs. Spoiler alert, sorry. Uh, a a plague-like rain of frogs from the sky. That's where it becomes a genre movie, is at the very end. And at the time... I thought, that's weird, and that doesn't really make any sense. After 9-11, it made total sense to me. You know, and this has nothing to do with artist intention, which, you know, I just reject offhand as being relevant to the meanings, myriad meanings, infinite meanings of any piece of art, including any good movie. It it has nothing to do with that, because they didn't see into the future and say, well, this is going to represent 9-11. But it works for me now. Not saying the last act of Kong 76 doesn't work for me. I'm just saying it has a big old asterisk on it now, you know? Events that had nothing to do with the filmmaking have given that sequence a lot, a different weight, and it's... That's right. And we can't clear it from our mind, even mm -hmm. if we've been entranced by the film up to that point, which a lot of people aren't, but I am. Still, it's like, okay, here we go. I know what's coming next. Yeah, and it, it certainly means something different to people like us who lived through 9-11 yeah. versus an audience member who was not alive at that point. I wonder if it would have the same resonance. I, I don't know. Yeah. Would the film have a resurgence in the past mm. uh, 15 years that had, it has not had? And other people are going to say, you know, I'm just so aware, Derek, of the fact that this isn't a very popular film with most genre fans. But But, again, I just love it. Um, and maybe it, maybe it's not the, the flaws within the film that have, have denied it the kind of resurgence that 33 version has had again and again. Maybe it has to do with the loaded material in the third sure. act. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a banner year for Kong. We've got Skull Island coming up next year. We've, Like you said, it's right. the anniversary of uh, the 2005. I mean, it's a banner year for Kong. It's a very popular documentary making the festival circuits right now called Long Live the King that I can't wait to see uh, about Ooh. King Kong. It, it's a banner year for Kong. There's a lot of material out there. I think there's room for revisiting movies like this that right. you just might not get because of what happened. 
wasn't aware of that documentary. I'm I'm very psyched to to hear about it. Kong Skull Island. I'm I'm pretty psyched for that too. I I think I read that it takes place in the 70s. Yeah. If so, that'll be a fascinating compare with the one that was made in the 70s about the 70s, especially in terms of how the I know she's a blonde this time, but how the female lead is treated and how she engages with the ape. Um, I mean, we may have to do a new segment when it comes out. <laughs> you can find Paul online at paulmacamas.com. Follow the link in the show notes. Or just come back next week because I'm going to have part two of my conversation with Paul about all things Kong. I had a blast. And it was a bit challenging, but in a very very good way. Paul always brings up these points that I hadn't considered and starts a conversation with me that I never anticipate, but by the time it's over, I'm glad I had it because I've learned some, I've had some insight, and that's a very, very good thing. All this is happening while we're still having fun being fans of these types of movies. I'll admit I went into that conversation not thinking that the 1976 King Kong was really all that great. The whole time, I'm listening to Paul and listening to his reasons for why it is worth another look. I want to go back and watch it again. In fact, I'd like to add that movie to my collection. I didn't have it when I watched it. I had to stream it from Amazon. I'd love to get my hands on a DVD. I don't think there's a Blu-ray, but if there is, I'd love to add that too. I'd love to have Paul back, and I'm going to next week when we finish our conversation about King Kong. considerably larger, about ten times the size of this gorilla's skull. Being instinctive rivals, there is no doubt that they will attempt to destroy one another. King Kong versus Godzilla, heading for their colossal collision, shattering every obstacle that stands between them in the most fantastic rampage of annihilation ever recorded on film. See King Kong stamp Tokyo into the ground, holding a beautiful girl in his grasp. See Godzilla destroy an entire army. See King Kong trapped by the blazing barrier of a billion volts. But nothing, nobody can stop the great showdown when King Kong and Godzilla meet to fight for survival of the fittest. Christopher, what insanity are you up to today? Oh, hey, Lydia. I'm downloading some movies. What? People are always telling me that's illegal. 
Uh-uh, not these. They're all public domain. Oh, look, rescue from Gilligan's Island. Well, let me see what you're doing. Oh, you're at archive.org. Well, they have thousands of films, TV shows, commercials, radio shows, and books available. Yeah, but there are so many. I wish there was a podcast or something that would discuss these things. You know, give us an idea of what's worth the time. Um, Christopher, there is. We do one. Oh, that's right. We host Orphan Entertainment. Once a month, we pick something and review and discuss it. That sure is nice of us. <laughs> sure. Why don't you click over to Orphan Entertainment and remind yourself a little more about the show. Oh, will do. Let's see, that's at orphanentertainment.com. And yeah, it looks like we're available on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. Oh, hey, can we review the Gilligan's Island movie someday? Mm-hmm, we'll see, Christopher. We'll see. Christopher Page is not just one of the podcasters behind the Orphan Entertainment Podcast. He also produces the Time Shifters Podcast, which you can find over at timeshifterspodcast.com. And earlier this month, he invited me to be part of the show. He interviewed me in what he's calling a monster-sized discussion, and that episode went out on November 18th. I'm going to put a link in the show notes, but you can check it out, like I said, at timeshifterspodcast.com. It's also available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. And it was a lot of fun. Christopher, thanks for inviting me on the show. Also, listeners, go check that out. Because during that conversation, Christopher and I nailed down what movie we're going to be talking about next on Monster Kid Radio when I get him back on the show. And I promise it's not going to be over a year between appearances of Christopher Page on MKR. I promise. Listeners, hold me to that. We want guns. Now, the final chapter in the incredible ape saga. There it is, our wars. This is the hell my forefathers used to speak about. This background radiation alone will give us 300 rentgens an hour. The battlefield, a dead city 12 years after the ultimate bomb has been dropped. The prize, the right to inherit what's left of the earth. The contestants, ape against man. The most unbelievable showdown ever filmed. As the mutants, strange transformed men who live underground like moles, battle the apes to decide who will be master and who will be slain. They're getting away. Kill them. We who survive create a new race. In the aftermath of his victory, the surface of the world was ravaged by the vilest war in human history. Climaxing the epic series which made motion picture history comes the last, the most spectacular of all the ape adventures. Now, fight like apes! 
out of the Forbidden City, they roared, to settle once and for all who had the right to rule the planet, ape or man. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. That brings us to the end of this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio. Again, thanks to Paul for being part of the show. Thanks to Chris for calling in that feedback. And thank you for listening to the show, for downloading us, reviewing our show on iTunes, liking us on Facebook, joining the Facebook group, or calling in your own feedback. You know, our voicemail line is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. You can also email us, monsterkidradio at gmail.com. In fact, I'd like to put the call out right now. In next week's episode, I'm going to ask Paul what his reaction is to a quote that I found from William Cronick. Now, he was a second unit director on the 1976 King Kong. He was also involved in the first King Kong. And I found this quote, Kong is a fantastic beast and audiences have more affinity for him than they do for Frankenstein or other screen monsters. Paul's response was fascinating. I can't wait to share that with you next week. But I'd like to know what you think of that quote. Call it in or send me an email or even send me a message on Facebook. Because we are doing part two of the King Kong conversation, Kong conversation next week, that means that Scott and I are not going to be covering Battle for the Planet of the Apes until episode 297. That episode is already in the virtual can. It's a lot of fun. I can't wait to get that out to you as well because it's been too long. We've been doing this Planet of the Apes journey for a long time. I'm eager to put the films behind us and then take it to the next level. And we'll talk about that when I have Scott on the show in a couple of weeks. After that, well, I've got a few things in the works. Rich Chamberlain and I are talking about getting him back on the show to talk about Carnival of Souls. I want to take a look at the Joe Dante-directed John Goodman-starring movie Matinee here in the near future with a couple of folks. Just got a lot of things in the works. Stay tuned to MonsterKidRadio.net to keep up to date, or again, follow us on Facebook. Special thanks to all the patrons who have supported Monster Kid Radio through our Patreon campaign. And that's pretty much it. Let's wrap up. Let's let you go so you can finish enjoying your Thanksgiving if you're here in the States and you celebrate that kind of thing. 
All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Ape Cape. That belongs to the band The Terror Surfs. They just had an album come out over at theterrorsurfs.bandcamp.com. The album is called Zomboid Surf Attack. It can be yours for 11 pounds, 12 songs, including this one, Ape Cape, which I really like. I hope you like it too. Talk to everybody next week. Ciao. (laughs) 